Good evening, everybody. Um, <clears throat> I know sometimes when you look up at all these teachers, you're not even sure who's who. So I'm Trudy, and I'm sucking a cough drop for obvious reasons. Um, I apologize for that, but I think it's better than loud coughs. And <clears throat> besides, it's an excuse to eat sugar. Um, because really, you know, there's candy. Um, and I'm also, uh, I'm just so happy to be up here with, well, not so much to be up here, but to be with my team. And, I mean, Christiana and I, she talked last night about how far back our um, love relationship goes. And Tere and Celeste, I mean, we've worked together for years and then I remember meeting you the first time at a six-week retreat at IMS. Who knows how long ago that was? Yeah. <laughs> we don't think about that. Donkey's age. <laughs> donkey's age. <laughs> I don't know how long donkeys live, but I hope a long time. <clears throat> and then Alexis through teacher training and Conda. Again, I don't know. Years ago. We don't want to count anymore. And then... How many retreats have we taught together? I feel like I've watched you grow up, Spring. But you were a great teacher from the beginning, um, just like Jack. I watched you grow up, too. Uh, <laughs> we've known each other since we were in our 20s, and I was at the second retreat that Jack ever taught, and he was great right then at the beginning. He really was always a great teacher. Um, <clears throat> so this evening, I'm going to talk about suffering and how it ends, how we deal with it, and what to do about it, and um, it's a talk that traditionally is called the Four Noble Truths talk, but first of all, I'm only going to talk about three tonight, number four will be later on, and and secondly, I like, um, when we were teaching in China, we taught the retreat at the um, Baofang Chan Temple, this Zen monastery um, in Jiangxi, but then we also taught, and that was a Buddhist retreat, but then we also taught a retreat um, that was a mindfulness retreat, where we were not to talk about Buddhism, um, because that wasn't what we had agreed to do. Like, the government has very... Um, clear guidelines for different kinds of gathering, like a religious gathering or a uh, training or a mindfulness retreat was a training. Um, so instead of talking about the Four Noble Truths, I talked about the Four Principles for Living a Good Life or something like that. And then the Eightfold Path was the Eight Steps to Happiness. And um, Crystal, my translator, afterwards she said, you were smuggling. <laughs> but there's something about that exercise of putting things into words that aren't the words you've always heard and always known that makes them fresh. And, and it's some of what I want to talk about tonight, about making the practice our own. Um, and Tija, I forgot to mention you. We've taught so many retreats, and teacher was in China with us, as you know, and thank goodness he was there, is all I can say. Everybody loved teacher. Um, 
Anyway, I really uh, love everybody on this team, and that's... Um, Why are you laughing? Oh, she thought I was going to say, and that's unusual. Um, <laughs> well, that's your mind, but um, <laughs> my experience is that our teams are pretty loving and har- harmonious. <laughs> so either I'm deluded or. <laughs> But that's kind of the difference between you and me, isn't it? You know, the aversive types, they see... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Back to the Dharma talk. Um, So the Buddha taught that it's really important for us to be aware of and know about and look at our suffering. And this is sometimes given Buddhism sort of a gloomy reputation. But he really meant, he was talking about the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And that's the suffering that we engage with um, actively, not just passively submitting to it, um, but that we engage with actively and that we uh, find ways to work with. Somebody in their meeting this morning was talking about suffering, having a hard time, and then saying, and then I open my toolbox and I find the tool that I know to work with it. And I thought, well, that's part of what we come here for, is to find the tools to work with it wisely. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to share sort of the classic teaching but before I do, I just want to say it's good for us to be aware that now there's a theoretical framework um, and it's in place, it's been elaborated over centuries and centuries um, of Buddhist practice. But at the beginning, it was, it was translated fresh from the unknown, from the actual lived experience of the Buddha who was sort of going to places that nobody had been willing to explore before or had the talent or ability to explore before in the way that he did. So he was looking deeply into his own life and suffering. And his experiential learning is a teaching for us to learn from our own experience instead of all these models and theories that have been developed over the centuries. And they're interesting and they can be useful, but if you're like me, you tend to compare yourself. You know, like, where am I in this map? And usually I'm not wherever I should be. Um, Or it's really just a plea to... um, to trust our own experience because we're raised in school to accommodate to existing structures. I mean, we have to socialize children and citizens. And so we're raised to do that. And it actually takes a lot of support to move from freedom from that kind of schooling to look outside ourselves uh, for answers and for learning and to, um, to approach our experience um, very intellectually, because in our schooling, think about it, we're really learning, most of the time we're learning from other people's experience. 
maybe somebody who lived centuries ago, maybe somebody contemporary, but it's their experience and knowledge that we're learning about. So we're very conditioned to do that. And it's harder, as I know you're discovering, having lived through day three, it's harder to trust our own experience and to trust that that experience is actually all we need to wake up. Just like Christiana was saying last night about, you know, the knowing of the body and that this, within this fathom-long body, is all the truth of life, everything that we need to know. I think somebody said that before Christiana, too. Um, Maybe the Buddha. Um, So, this first... Oh, and I I also want to say that I like... um, I like Stephen Batchelor's formulation of the Four Noble Truths because he said this isn't a list of things to be believed, but um, it's a list of things to be done. So it's a more active understanding of, like I think he calls them Four Noble Tasks instead of Four Noble Truths. And that's what I was talking about. Instead of you know received knowledge that we then apply to our experience and see does our experience fit that or not, um, we look at it, okay, these are practices. These are things we can do. And I, I'm emphasizing this because I've suffered a lot in my... Excuse me. In my practice life, um, from listening to what the teacher said and then applying it to my own experience. And if my experience didn't match what the teacher said, then I felt certain there was something wrong with my experience. And instead of understanding that we're all wired so differently, and uh, the Buddha never taught one size fits all, but taught different people in different ways. And that's why it's so great that we have these teams of different people with different takes on the Dharma and on experience, and it gives you permission to have your own as well. So that... um, the first thing to be done is to work with our suffering and, um, and to fully know our suffering. And that's hard because we don't want to go there. It's painful by its very nature. But to look at our suffering um, firsthand, as I'm saying, and to see it as an unavoidable fact of life, that it's not a mistake because we, you know, chose the wrong career path or married the wrong person or did anything wrong. It's built into our life because of our mortality and um, the impermanence of things. And, uh, well, just the way life is. We do have pain in being born and in dying and sometimes in between too. And so it's, it really takes us off the hook. It's just an unavoidable fact of life. Um, and so how do we work with this? We work with it by, um, oh, and I wanted to say in terms of the suffering, somebody had a great image today. They were talking about when they were young working in a factory And on the conveyor belt, it was actually, um, they said that they felt like their experience here was um, this conveyor belt of sausages arriving really fast. And because it was a sausage factory. And if you, you had to, 
you had to receive the sausages and do what you were, what your station was supposed to do with them, put them, I guess, on another machine. You had to do it really fast, and yet they would keep coming. And so she was uh, talking about her experience of her meditation like that. You know, things are just coming up and coming up and coming up, and and maybe too fast to even um, even deal with them. But um, but the suffering we're told that the cause of the suffering is not so much the experience itself, but our aversion to it or our greed for more of it. Um, and classically, the four kinds are the suffering of not getting what we want. You know, you walk in to lunch, and I love tofu, and today was tofu, I was really happy. But some days it's like, it's tempeh, which... I won't go into it, but I don't like it. And so you walk in and then there's your, you know, you kind of, uh, there's that sinking feeling. Oh, I'm sorry if there's a cook here who loves tempeh, but um, not getting what we want and that, you know, that suffering. And then there's the suffering of getting what we don't want, like tempeh. And, um, and there's another kind of more su- subtle suffering. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, it's the suffering that um, the wonderful British pediatrician and psychoanalyst of the last century, uh, D.W. Winnicott, he talked about a kind of suffering that children have that they can't name, which is when something good could have happened, but didn't. So it's not that something bad happened, but something good that could have happened didn't happen. And that's the suffering of overlooking all the neutral moments of our experience, because those are actually moments of ease, as Alexis was talking about this morning. Those are moments that where nothing much is going on, but instead of finding them peaceful and understanding that that's actually a freedom from suffering, we just think it's boring and turn on our phones. Um, Well, not here. And so how do we, um, you know, we we suffer because of our our forgetfulness, our not remembering to be mindful and the strong energies of our emotions and our habits that aren't the healthy habits, but the other kind. I mean, we turn on the phone and we turn it off or we pick up a book and then we put it down or we open the window and then we close it or we, you know, there's just a lot of um, very being sort of driven by trying to get comfort and it never lasts because then the window, then it gets too cold and we have to close it. Um, and, and so this cause of our suffering is understood to be the way that we the relationship that we make with our experience, as Alexis was talking about this morning. And so that leads to the second truth <clears throat> that this, well, I'm talking about the second truth, which is the cause, is our clinging and our developing a relationship that's based on either wanting or pushing away. Um, and we can stop that. 
And it's not that we have to stop doing that. The mind will do that. I'll never walk in and see Tempe and think, oh, cool, I'm so happy. Um, it's, that doesn't have to happen. But when we're aware of the not liking, the aversion, we can feel some tenderness because usually that which we don't like and feel averse to, it's because it's painful for us. I mean, aversion is kind of compassionate. It's like a very uh, misguided form of compassion, really. It's trying to save us from having unpleasant experiences. Um, And, oh, I forgot to tell you the other two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering of being separated from those we love because they've passed away or because they live too far away and we miss them. Um, Jack and I live in separate places, so sometimes I have that suffering. I just think, it's evening, why can't he just come over? Um, Because he'd have to get on an airplane, that's why. Um, But then there's the suffering of the, the fourth kind, which is being near the people you don't like. So, <laughs> um, somebody was saying today, it's so early in the retreat, but she already has a Vipassana vendetta. <laughs> and for those of you who may not know what that is, you can probably guess, but you know how somebody just annoys you silently? seems like they're even doing it to annoy you. They're, bre- they're breathing too loud. Um, and they're fidgeting too much. Um, they went and ate thirds. That's disgusting. <laughs> Etc. Um, and so we can release that kind of suffering. It's just a routine. We're go- we cycle through it all day long, really. It's very routine for us. We get kind of used to it. Um, but when we start to see how it occurs, um, you know, we kind of, we stop demanding that lunch will be, you know, what I want every day. We stop demanding that the world um, conform to our desires all the time. Um, and we can begin to let go and get out of these states of agitation that you all know. Um, the third day is a hard day. Uh, it always makes me think of the dinosaurs struggling to get out of the La Brea tar pits. Um, it's hard the third day, um, except they didn't make it, and you are going to. <laughs> We're not going to find your bones here <laughs> later on, <laughs> archaeologists, you know. Um, but we can actually stop our fear and our anger and our craving, and um, we can stop them not by trying to stop the emotion from existing or happening, but um, by, well, what Alexis was saying, you know, just allowing, relaxing, allowing. It's here. It's already here, whatever it is, the rage or the sorrow. It's here. So what kind of relationship are we going to make with it? That's the challenge to us uh, in our work here, um, to decide... Um, it's not that we have to shut down or suppress these feelings, but we can have them. But by mindful breathing, mindful walking, just slowing into an experience and looking deeply to try and understand it, turning to the body, what is it like in the body? Um, you know, somebody this morning was having a hard time and 
and we looked at how does that feel in the body, and it felt like this very cold, tight fist around the heart. And then looking closely at that cold, it got colder. So that's our fear, right? If we look at it, it's going to get worse. It's going to amplify. It's going to. But with a little bit of patience and willingness to just keep observing, it shifts, and it did. And then, you know, we have um, some feeling of tenderness and release, and that's the third um, of the truths that it's possible to stop suffering and it's possible to um, to let go and enjoy maybe they're very brief periods of time where we're not being pushed around by our you know liking and disliking and uh, maybe it's brief periods of time but it doesn't take long if you just have a few seconds of relief you've glimpsed something that you will not forget And if you think back on past retreats, what you remember the most usually are those glimpses that you had. Of course, then you want them again. Um, But the paradoxical part, and really the unfair part, I think, about the way life is, is that, or certainly meditation life, by wanting it again, it almost guarantees it won't happen again. It's so not fair. I mean, why is it like that, right? But it is because it's wanting or aversion to what is happening. And then there's an eightfold path that you can follow. And I'm going to talk more about that, um, I think, a different night. So the Buddha said very clearly, suffering, which is a translation of dukkha, and I always thought of dukkha more like insecurity, maybe because I tend to be more on the anxious side of that. You know, we all have our particular flavor of suffering. Um, Like I'm always make sure I have some loving moment, even if Jack is just going for a hike or something. My anxious mind is always aware this could be our last moment. Um, (laughs) um, Luckily, he's always come back so far, but, um, but you know, whatever, however you, you can make your own translation for dukkha according to your you know, favorite, preferred flavor. Um, But he says whatever kind it is, it's to be fully understood, to be embraced, to be accepted in a deep, calm, and insightful way. That's a tall order. We need each other to do this. We really need the support of each other. and, And we have it here together in this room. The sad thing for me about being sick is that one of the joys of teaching retreats is we get to sit a lot more than we would at home. And I haven't really been able to sit with you, but you're supporting each other's practice. You seem to be doing actually fine without me. Um, um, So our craving is something to let go of. But again, when you hear that let go, you think it's something... You have to make it happen, but again, paradoxically, by letting it be, by just letting it be so, in the openness of heart and mind. It doesn't have to go away. We just have to not be bothered by it. That's our responsibility. It doesn't have to go away. We're trying to make things go away that we hate, but 
They actually don't have to. Um, and the task is to let them be. And that takes a lot of practice. And it takes a lot of courage to believe that it's okay to feel terrible, for example. Um, I worked with a young woman very closely years ago when I was working as a psychotherapist in Boston, and where I lived most of my adult life. And um, her father had uh, committed suicide, and she was in so much agony that she couldn't believe that she didn't have something wrong with her, that she didn't have a brain tumor was what she was afraid of because it hurt so much. And you can see it in yourself. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it's hard for us to believe that it's okay to be miserable in any given moment. I mean, you're not going to stay that way. Even if you wanted to, you can't stay that way. That's... um, that's the truth of things always changing. Um, so letting it be whatever the it is, it's usually a difficult emotion. That's what's hard, you know, to let it be. Um, letting it be means also accepting that it's okay to be unhappy sometimes. And if we see clearly that it's not our fault. That's what I think usually makes us so miserable. We think it's our fault. We aren't measuring up. We did something wrong. This practice isn't right for us. All the different doubts that people have been naming. But what if it's just the nature of life and it's not even personal? What if it's just about causes and conditions that led to this moment of discontent? Um... Instead, we tell ourselves, you know, we're a bad meditator, we're a bad practitioner because we're supposed to be contented. It's that measuring again, instead of just staying close to our own experience and, and really honoring that experience by uh, letting it be the truth of this moment. It's not going to be the truth of tomorrow, but it's the truth of this moment and my first teacher was a Korean Zen master, and he used to say that to us because we'd be like, you know, he got so angry, like it's some Buddhist sin. And he would say, anger is truth. You know, in that moment, that's what's true. That's what's happening. Um, and so when we experience these moments when our idea our attachment to what it's supposed to be like and our grasping at what it should be like, when that stops and it can just be as it is, um, we really feel some relief. And so this, the ending of suffering, it's not some remote experience that you might get at the end of the retreat or if you do lots more more retreats. Um, Yeah, lots more. Um, It's something you can experience, you know, any, any... Excuse me. It's something you can experience any time. Um, I remember when I was in teacher training in Jack's group, um, I had already been teaching Zen, 
but I had to learn how to become a Vipassana, a, a mindfulness teacher. And actually, I had already learned how to be a mindfulness teacher, teaching with John Kabat-Zinn in the early days, but I had to learn how to teach the way it is here and at IMS. I guess that's a Vipassana teacher. And, um, and Jack gave us this beautiful uh, teaching from Buddha Dasa, Thai forest monk, and it was called Everyday Nibbana. And it was, again, it was sort of a teaching like about moments that we overlook. I'm always interested in what's overlooked or, you know, that good thing that could have happened but didn't. Um, moments that we overlook, because overlooking is that good thing that could have happened but didn't. Um, like moments of relief from a simple suffering, like that feeling of when you're really hungry and you eat that first bite of food and it's just, mmm, and then the hunger goes away. Or the feeling of being really thirsty and having a drink and it quenches our thirst and it's just like, oh, uh, you know, you can feel it in your whole body when the water goes in your body and the thirst ends. Um, these are moments of freedom from, perhaps you could think of it as, um, maybe suffering is too big of a word for it, but it's an experience of um, that's not pleasant, you know, being very hungry or being very thirsty. Or, um, or I was very warm earlier, and when I stepped outside in this gentle drizzle and cool, soft air, ah, it felt so good. Or the least poetic example that I usually use, but we all understand it, is the one when you just like really, really have to pee. And then, ah, you pee. This is everyday Nibbana. You might not have been thinking of that as a moment of Nirvana in your life. Um, this is what we call a reframe. Because um, you can think of it that way now, right? It's a release from uncomfortableness. And so think of all the moments now that we would overlook as just being not worth our noticing. And instead, they now become sort of drops in the bucket of freedom, freedom from suffering. And we're getting the hang of it by appreciating those moments. And we'll start to see them more and more places, too. Um, and and a lot of it has to do with what I was talking about earlier, you know, the shoulds, the way we've been taught that we're supposed to be. Like, I was taught, if you're getting sick, you should rest. And I really listened to Christiana's talk last night about resting. So I went to bed and rested this afternoon. And I started to fall asleep. And then Jack came in and I woke up. I felt horrible. I felt so much worse from resting. And he said well, you know, do you want me to give the talk or anything? And I said, well, let's wait 10 minutes and I'll get up and see. And so I, like, I got up and I sat up and I got my stuff together and, you know, had some cough drops and I felt so much better. But that's not how it's supposed to be. But anything's possible, really, um, when we experience the ending of some kind of suffering in our hearts and in our minds. Um, it's something to experience very fully and to savor and to enjoy um, because that helps us um, 
You know, it helps us, it helps that come to us more. And that's really the task that was, uh, you know, suggested, um, suggested by the Buddha. And then we experience those, you know, those brief moments of relief from a kind of mundane suffering. And lo and behold, uh, they extend. We see them more and more places and they extend. And... It really does become like a figure ground shift where before the ground was mostly suffering and then the figure was those glimpses of moments when you're not. But as we practice and get more stable and accustomed to the freedom from suffering, it shifts. And that becomes more the ground of our life. And then we really notice the moments when we're caught. So it gets a lot, um, it actually gets a lot easier. Um, Oh, this is a poem about what I was talking about earlier that I wanted to read you. It's by March Piercy. And it's called Unlearning to Not Speak. Unlearning to to not speak. And um but I can we can think of it here as um unlearning <laughs> the habits that we've been told to have, you know, from school. Blizzards of paper in slow motion sift through her. In nightmares, she suddenly recalls a class she signed up for but forgot to attend. Now it's too late. Now it's time for finals, and the losers are going to be shot. (laughs) Phrases of the men who lectured her drift and rustle in piles. Why don't you speak up? You have the wrong answer, the wrong line, the wrong face. She must learn again to speak, starting with I, starting as the infant does, with her own true hunger and pleasure and rage. So this is a poem not about being I, me, mine, narcissistic, ego-centered. It's a poem about starting from our own experience, starting from the raw experiences of just being life in the form of you or life in the form of me. And it's like what Sansanim, my first teacher, was saying, that those moments of truth, her own true hunger, her own true pleasures, her own true rage. And I think when we speak authentically about our own true experience, we actually want to listen to each other. We have sonar for that, and we're curious about it, aren't we? Um, this is another poem <clears throat> that I found by Elizabeth Alexander. Um, she's the one who read a poem at the inauguration of President Obama. Poetry, I, and, and instead of poetry, you can substitute meditation. <clears throat> poetry, I tell my students, is idiosyncratic. Poetry is where we are ourselves. Poetry is what you find in the dirt in the corner, over here on the bus, God in the details, the only way to get from here to there. Poetry, and now my voice is rising, she says, is not all love, 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 and I'm sorry the dog died. 
Poetry, and here I hear myself loudest, is the human voice. And are we not of interest to each other? I think we really are. I think when we speak with our true voice, whether it's misery or happiness or um, shining that light of awareness on the dirt in the corner, you know, the corners of our hearts that really feel messed up um, or obscured or occluded from clarity and peace and wisdom and, you know, compassion, all the good Dharma stuff. Um, But poetry is there and truth is there. And so not to be dismayed when we find ourselves there. It takes time to attend truly to a poem. It takes time to attend carefully to a work of art or um, a subject of meditation. It takes time to attend carefully to ourselves. Um, And it takes time to wait for some wisdom and understanding to emerge from the chaos or the clutter or the confusion of our experience. It takes time to learn to trust that confusion um, and to trust that out of the confusion and the not knowing, something true and clear will emerge. I remember the first time I learned what happens to caterpillars on the way to becoming butterflies, that the caterpillar, you know, it spins its cocoon and then it just completely melts and dissolves in that cocoon. It's like disintegrates. And then somehow it reconstitutes in a new form of butterfly. And I don't understand exactly how that happens, but I'm sure people do um, who are entomologists. But we can all relate to that because it feels like what happens here in retreat, like we just fall apart. And so much of retreat is creating a safe place for us to fall apart where we don't have to make decisions about what we're going to do next, although we do. Um, I mean, I was telling somebody, I've found ways to get really busy and do a lot of planning in retreats. Like, when am I going to wash my socks? And... (laughs) And when is it time for a shampoo? And I've been able to actually feel um, pressed for time <laughs> in, in a silent retreat. Um, you know, it, you, yeah, you, you know, we can, the mind can just do what it needs to do with its hab- habitual um, ways. So it takes time and a little patience to wait, to trust that out of this confusion and It feels sometimes like dissolution, you know, of just who we have known ourselves to be, that that's actually what learning is. Usually we think of learning as we hear something, like I say my talk, and then you compare it to your own ideas. Um, But that's not really learning, because when we just compare things to um, our own ideas about them, and we think, well, 
Hmm. Yeah, I like what Gina said. Yeah, that's that's correct. I accept that. Or actually, I totally disagree. It's incorrect. I do not accept that. That's what we do all day long, and we don't learn anything new. You know, it's out of the not knowing and the willingness to be confused that something creative and new and fresh um, can emerge. Um, so I have a lot more stuff, but I think that this is really enough for tonight. Um, I'm going to do two quotes to end. <clears throat> and one is from Simone Weil, and she said, she was talking about this, um, this patience of being attentive that it's so hard to cultivate. So I don't know about you, it's my least favorite virtue to cultivate. Um, she says, a way of looking, this looking that is mindfulness, that is what we're practicing, a way of looking is first of all attentive. She uses the expression the soul, but we can think the heart. The heart empties itself of all its own contents in order to receive into itself the being that it is looking at just as she is in all her truth. But that being that we're looking at is ourselves here and just as we are in all our truth. And my last quote is... Um, from Phyllis Wheatley, who was a slave in Boston. And she was educated, which is, of course, very unusual. And she says, in every human, God has implanted a principle, she became Christian, which we call love of freedom. It's impatient of oppression and longs for deliverance. So I think that that's how we feel here. You know, we really don't want to be oppressed um, by our views of ourselves that are small and um, make us feel unworthy and bad. We don't want to be oppressed and we don't want to be oppressed by our government and we don't want to be oppressed by anything really. We long for freedom and the um, privilege to learn and grow and expand our hearts, expand our circle of metta, expand our caring. And, um, and I really love that we're doing this together. I hope I'll be able, I know I'll be able to come and sit with you some more. But I feel very close to you, even, <laughs> even if I'm resting and feeling miserable. I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Um, <laughs> um, so... Yeah, thank you for listening, and um, I'll share the rest with you the next time it's my turn to speak. Um, the Eight Steps to Happiness, that's what we can talk about. <laughs> In the meantime, um, don't overlook the little joys, the little moments of happiness or freedom that come your way, and find them everywhere, you know, just everywhere, just putting down that heavy fork, anything, you know, <laughs> and the lightness of the hand, you understand what I'm saying. So um, that's enough, let's just sit together for a moment.
So thank you, everybody. Thank you for your kind attention and <clears throat> for your practice all day and all night. And um, yeah, I really wish you a wonderful evening and a good night's sleep. And I will see you tomorrow. So thank you. Enjoy your walking. It, did, it has pretty much stopped raining when I came in. So enjoy your walking, hopefully outside in that cool, beautiful air.